Welcome to Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. I'm your host, Tim Friedman, along with fellow Clevelander, rock and roll expert, Frank Ost. Frankie, welcome to Season 4, Episode 2. Ah, it's great to be here. Our featured artist is going to be John Lennon. We're going down the line. Beatles, one by one. Paul McCartney was a great conversation last week, wasn't it? Yeah, he's uh, just such an icon. John Lennon this week, George Harrison next week, followed by Ringo Starr. And at the end of the month, Frankie, November 29th, we're going to have our one-year anniversary of Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations featuring rock and roll expert Frank Oss podcast. That might be the longest title. <laughs> it's hard to believe. But it's the best show. Wow, a year. It's the best Holy show God. going. You can listen to it any, anywhere you hear podcasts now. So we appreciate your downloads and, Frankie, your input, of course. Had some good times, haven't we? Absolutely. we talk all about the last year. We're going to do that very soon. So join us. Since the Rock Hall has inducted their latest class, 2021, Todd Rundgren, Tina Turner, Foo Fighters and that, uh, we are continuing our series of two should get in. I'm going to give you one. You give me one. How's that Great. sound? For me, Mariah Carey. Oh, I think that's choice. a no-brainer. She's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I didn't know she co-wrote most of her biggest hits, like Vision of Love, Love Takes Time, I Don't Want to Cry, Someday, Can't Let Go. And my favorite is My All. That's quite a lot of talent right there. Her song, All I Want for Christmas is You, has earned over $60 million in royalties alone. It's wow. become the biggest selling Christmas song of all time. That tops Bing Crosby's White Christmas. It sold that really? single alone over 17 million copies. That's great. One Sweet Day with Boys to Men, 1995, spent 16 weeks atop the charts, Billboard Hot 100. Things were changing at that time, for sure, sure. but and it has since been taken over by other songs, but at the time was the longest-running number one song in the nation ever, ever. according to Billboard. Yeah. It's a long, long time. Mariah Carey has a five-octave voice, which can range to seven octaves, and unlike some other singers, she stays in tune. Yeah, and doesn't get... Uh screechy all the time as we yeah. say she sold over 200 million records worldwide uh these are some of the performers who cite mariah carey as their influence and just let me know if you know some of these rihanna beyonce pink adele Katy perry lady gaga best singers wow. of our day don't you mm -hmm. think her holiday album merry christmas has sold over 15 million copies alone the philanthropist Winner of five Grammy Awards, 10 Music Awards, American Music Awards, and 19 World Music Awards. She's been eligible since 2015. Now that Whitney Houston is in, Linda Ronstadt, of course, Stevie, Whit Stevie Nicks. I think it's high time Mariah Carey at least gets nominated, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm surprised yeah. she hasn't been to this date. New Yorker. It, yeah. Philanthropist. It, she's still, she, she's kind of quirky with her, her personality, <laughs> but who isn't, really? Yeah, and I mean, she's a... Uh, a star. I mean, who, like you say, who at that level isn't a little bit quirky. What a voice, too. I Absolutely. mean, you put it right up there with Adele and Whitney Houston. Or somebody like uh, Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, yeah definitely. James, he's... definitely. So I think she definitely deserves consideration for nomination oh. and induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Who do you have? Earlier uh, this year, we had the honor of... Uh, interviewing um, our buddy Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad. I remember that. So I figured that, yeah. I'd give a little bit of love to uh, Grand Funk. Give a shout-out to Grand Funk Absolutely. Railroad, the natives now, of Flint, Michigan. That's right. Now, they've sold, uh, like we said, north of 30 million records, had five top five, or excuse me, four top five singles, and some of the biggest records of the 70s. 
uh, where an American band was and is one of the great anthems and tributes to the rock and roll lifestyle. Especially if you like Cowbell. Absolutely. And then, uh, of course, there's The Locomotion and Some Kind of Wonderful that ended up being top 10 singles for their respective years. Yeah. Uh, this band was also one of the first arena rock bands selling out venues like Shea Stadium, Madison Square Garden, when it was still very much a rarity for a rock band to be able to do that. Well, they're good in concert too, Frankie, yeah, aren't absolutely. they? Absolutely. And they worked with some of the finest producers in the business, uh, Jimmy Einer, Terry Knight, Frank Zappa, and of course, Todd Rundgren, who famously praised their talent and work ethic in the studio. Um, and yes, they did take it on the chin from critics, but it was David Fricke of Rolling Stone magazine who said, you cannot talk about rock in the 1970s without talking about Grand Funk Railroad. And I think that says it all. Sometimes overlooked. I don't know why. The great song, Closer to Home, I'm Your Captain, uh, recorded in uh, Cleveland Recording Studios right here downtown Cleveland. That's right. Great song. One of my favorites of all time. And, of course, Grand Funk Railroad. I love just talking to Mark about, about what he's doing these days and back in the day and how the band got together again and the song. I'm Your Captain, came to him as a prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, just a gifted songwriter, and what a great group that is. They've sold so many albums, and their first nine were certified either gold or platinum and multi-platinum. Exactly. So I think it's high time for them as well. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they'll get the call. What do you think? I hope so. Concert calendar time, Frankie. I told you I'd give you a full rundown on uh, uh, the show last Wednesday at MGM Northfield Park Center Stage. That's right. You know the the venue. I it's I kind of poo pooed it before. It's not that bad, I suppose. You okay. Know, we had aisle seats. I told my sister Mickey, if you get tickets, make sure they're on the aisle. That's the way I am anymore. <laughs> I'm an aisle guy. <laughs> and luckily, as they go closer to the stage, uh, there weren't any seats in front of my my legs. So you know. Oh, that's uh, nice. Yeah, we we're only a few uh, rows away from the big screen. And that stage left, as they call it. And um, then, of course, the stage was up there. And good show. It's a great show. I mean, the guys are getting a little older now. Well, of course. Yeah. But the backup band was tremendous. They sang all their hits, even a couple of Davy Jones hits, Daydream Believer. And, nice. You know, a couple others. So, and the Peter Tork song, For Pete's Sake. Remember the... Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The In This Generation song. And, you know, Michael Nesmith, oh, songs he wrote, great. He sang different drum, or Mickey did. Oh. Really? Yeah. That's cool. And all of the ones that uh, made him famous on those albums, You Just May Be the One or Sweet Young Thing. Uh, yeah. Mickey Dolenz was in rare form and he's a good showman. So it was a really good show. I'm glad I went. So we have Carl Palmer's ELP Legacy coming up this Friday, the 12th, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the supergroup. It's going to be a Kent stage, 8 o'clock. It's kind of a weird show, it sounds like. Yeah. From what I've been reading it's kind of him playing drums with maybe some tracks from the the old guys from the back in the day you know keith emerson and uh greg like of course and, huh. and maybe some uh you know movies or whatever they call it you know yeah some uh, video background video background exactly i so, was kind of i hope not i don't know it sounds kind of weird but it, I, it does sounds sound, like it's where it's going it does sound kind of weird um but I guess you'd have to go go actually see it to see if it made any sense at all. 
November 30th, a Tuesday night, Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse Genesis is going to be coming. It's, they're going to be in Detroit the night before, and it's a huge tour. They're first here in North America for 14 years. I think they're going to put on a great show. Uh, the audio-visual show that they put on is usually great. Uh, my question would be is how active uh, Phil Collins will be, you know, because he's having a hard time getting around anymore. John Waite, you know, babies, solo career, bad English, Kent Stage. Friday the 5th the 17th. REO Speedwagon, Kevin Cronin, still with the band, but of course Gary Richrath passed away. Yeah, a that's years a real ago. shame. He was quite a lead guitar player. It's at Northfield Park again. And Trans Siberian Orchestra's Christmas Eve and Other <laughs> Stories, <laughs> 3 and 8 p.m. on Thursday, December 30th. As we said, I couldn't be more out of the Christmas spirit by then, but uh, I mean, if you're really into holiday stuff and you're still kind of hanging on to Christmas, like, you got a good show to see. Oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, and I know a lot of people swear by it. They go to it every year. Mm-hmm. Personally, I could care less. <laughs> One hit wonder time, Frankie. You're going to love these. <laughs> Carl Douglas, Kung Fu Fighting, number one song, 1974. That rounded out your greatest year of number one records. And let's just go down the list. Billy, Don't Be a Hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Night Chicago sure Die. <laughs> <laughs> and Kung Fu Fighting right at the end. Jeez, yep. uh, Carl Douglas, you know, that was released. That was actually uh, going to be the B-side of the song. They were running out of time in the recording studio, so they put this song together in just a couple of takes. And uh, Carl Douglas, with the, the follow-up called Dance the Kung Fu, which only <laughs> reached number 48 in spring of 75, the Jamaican vocalist, Produced by British Indian musician Bidu. Went to number one in over a dozen countries, this song did, yet only hit number three in Norway and only number three on the U.S. disco chart, which at the time was just getting started, but still. Right, right. It, it was recorded as the B side, as I said, of the song I Want to Give You My Everything, and it rose to the top of the charts in late 74. Who knew Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas would be a number one hit, but it was. Yeah, that, and it was one of the strangest songs that, uh, ever came out that's for sure would you have liked to see carl douglas in concert i don't think so i think after kung fu fighting he was done <laughs> next up no relation carol douglas remember doctor's orders barely the follow-up to hurricane is coming tonight which you probably don't know either it only made it to number 81 in the spring of 75 mm. doctor's orders peaked to number 11 in the winter of 75 just after kung fu fighting came out so People would think, well, their husband and wife, like George and Gwen McRae, were or something. Right. Not so. Her father was a mortician, and Carol's cousin is Sam Cooke. Oh, really? Okay. Doctor's orders, number 11, winter of 75, our other one-hit wonder. Nice. We're going to be debuting very soon, Frankie, in addition to one-hit wonders, groups that had two hits. Okay. Two-hit wonders. Gotcha. For lack of better title. Today in rock history, Frankie, November 8th, 1967, John Lennon's movie, How I Won the War, was released in the U.S. We'll talk about that movie when we speak about uh, John Lennon, when we discuss his stellar solo career, just a few minutes. A year later, John's wife, Cynthia, became his ex-wife after six years of marriage. That's right. Mm -hmm. Also in 1968, Aretha Franklin fell in her hotel room in Hawaii, was forced to perform the next two shows in a wheelchair. 1971, one of your favorites, Led Zeppelin IV, was released featuring Stairway to Heaven. Mm-hmm. 
Also released on this date in 1971 was American Pie by Don McLean. Yeah. Elton John's Greatest Hits was released. That was number one for a long time. Yeah. Love that. It's a great record. David Bowie makes his first appearance in the U.S. in 1975 on The Sharer Show, performing the song Fame. Really? Co-written by John Lennon. Definitely. Michael Jackson teamed up with Sony Corporation of America in 1985 to form the third largest music publishing company with more than 100,000 titles to its name. In 1994, Sonny Bono, formerly a mayor of Palm Springs, was elected to the U.S. Congress, to which a political magazine called him one of the dimmest bulbs in Congress. (laughs) Well, you know, that doesn't take much, I guess. (laughs) I got a vote, babe. 2002, Pink Floyd member David Gilmore was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. High honor indeed. Beautiful. And the original Guitar Hero video game was released in North America in 2005. All right. Birthdays. Bram Stoker, you know, Dracula, 1847. That sounds like a good year for a guy like that to be born, doesn't it? Absolutely. Remember Darla Hood of Little Rascals fame? Yes, of course. She was born in 1931. Bonnie Bramlett. Do you know her? Yeah, Bonnie, Delaney and Bonnie, yeah. Never-ending Song of Love and a cover version of Dave Mason's Only You Know and I Know. Bonnie Bramlett was born in 1944. The late Minnie Ripperton, born in 1948, that number one song, Loving You, which now I probably can't get out of my head for the rest of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Bonnie Raitt was born in 1949. Ricky Lee Jones, 1954. Crush of the Girls, I guess, in the late 70s. I guess. W- would be um Would be Leif Garrett. Definitely. The 1961. Remember Tiger Beat magazine? Sure, there. absolutely. Celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay was born in 1966. And ABC TV news anchor David Muir, 1973. Are you kidding I me? I thought he was wow. a little younger than yeah. that. Those are birthdays, November 8th. Frankie, this was a, a topic you brought up, rock releases. Albums that were released this week. That's right. In history. We talked about Led Zeppelin IV and also Don McLean's American Pie, both released in this date in 1971. Transformer by Lou Reed also was released in 1972. Great. But you liked uh, Can't Buy a Thrill by Steely Dan, their mm. debut album, also released in this date in 72. Sheer Heart Attack by Queen, 74. 1981 brought Business as Usual and Mitt and Men at Work. The singles, The Carpenters, Greatest Hits, was released on November 9th, 1973. Piano Man, Billy Joel. Chicago uh, 9, Greatest Hits, okay. was released this week in 1975. Jazz by Queen was released in 1978. Moody Blues, Days of Future Past, was released in 1967 on the 11th. Also November 11th, 1975, brought Gratitude by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, another great record. Yes, had Fragile out in 1971. Nursery Crime by Genesis. Not many people knew about Genesis in 1971, but no, that was early on. People would eventually, wouldn't they? So those are some good albums released this week over the years, starting in 1971. It was a good week. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. We're up to 1979, Frankie, with our album covers. Another one of your great ideas. Now you had these in your possession. And maybe more so as a younger guy, you know, sitting there listening to the music while you're looking at the gatefold or the lyrics or the front cover or whatever, right? Oh, absolutely. But by the time 1979 came around. It was great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By then you were in your early 20s and... Was still doing the same thing. Still listening to records and I was still, you know... Couldn't yeah. wait to get them home. And, and it was a record, too, wasn't it? Yeah, a CD. it was not a CD, not yet. 
Candy O was released as the follow-up to their debut album by The Cars, which was also released in, in June the year before, but in like June 13th or something, 1979, Candy O by The Cars, one of the greatest follow-up albums of all time. We've talked about that. Absolutely. When The Cars were a featured artist. But uh, what can you tell me about the album cover, Candy O? And what a great album cover it was. It was painted by artist Alberto Vargas, who is probably better known for his paintings of pinup girls that appeared in uh, Esquire and Playboy magazines. I was going to say, uh, she looks like a pinup girl. Exactly. Uh, from the 40s and through the 60s. Uh, the higher, idea of the higher Vargas came from drummer David Robinson, the band's artistic director, and a collector of pinups. The 83-year-old Vargas had retired several years earlier, uh, but was persuaded to come take the assignment by his niece, who happened to be a big Cars fan. Uh, the painting, depicting a woman sprawled on across the hood of a Ferrari 365, was based uh, on a photo shoot directed by Robinson at a Ferrari dealership. And, of course, you can't make this stuff up. The model was coincidentally named Candy Moore. <laughs> <laughs> the resulting cover uh, was completely hand-drawn with no airbrushing, but the electric execs did accept, um, insist on one do-over, uh, and that was after the first drawing was submitted. They wanted the model to be, well, a little less um anatomically cor correct <laughs> right uh sadly enough the back cover just contains the normal track list info and boring pictures of each band member and what they play yeah because i can't you can call up the front i can't even imagine the back now it, thinking about it there you go I have to go find the album but who would have guessed that the cover would be the most recognized work in vargas's long career no kidding that's pretty amazing it's good stuff in that in that album too, wasn't it? Absolutely. Again, produced by Roy album. Thomas Baker. You know, Queen. He did Night at the Opera. A couple others from them. Journey. Uh, David Bowie. Many, many other top recording artists of the day. Uh, released in June '79, went to number three on the top 200 album chart here in the states. That's 15 notches better than the previous one, their debut album, which was Everybody's Good in oh, 1978. Yeah. Good one. What else do you got for me? 1979, Frankie. Well. Um... A big album from that year, The Clash, London Calling. The cover itself uh, was designed by graphic designer Rob Lowry. And if you've seen it, you know it pays homage to the design of Elvis Presley's self-titled debut album with pink letters down the left side and green text across oh, the didn't, bottom. I didn't know that. Yep. I, I looked it up, and boy, it sure does. It looks just like it. The Clash played uh, New York's Palladium on September 20th and 21st, 1979. When they were done, photographer Penny Smith walked away with a photo of Paul Simonon uh, smashing his bass across the stage that became the cover of the album. Simonon explained in the 2011 interview with Fender that he smashed the bass out of frustration when he learned that the bouncers at the concert would not allow people to stand up in their seats. <laughs> now, Penny Smith originally did not want the photograph used. She thought it was too out of focus and didn't look right. But The Clash and Lowry thought it would make a good cover. In 2002, Smith's photograph was named the best rock and roll photograph of all time <laughs> by Q Magazine, commenting that it captures the ultimate rock and roll moment, total loss of control. The Clash. London Calling. Absolutely. Train in Vain, Revolution Rock, double album, released in December of 79, produced by Guy Stevens, who was responsible 
for getting the group Matahupal in the front and center. He gave them the name, actually. Managed the group for a time in the early 70s. However, he did not produce the album All the Young Dudes. That was David Bowie who produced that one. That's right. Train in Vain. That's a good tune. The in London Calling, great album by The Clash. Fantastic A couple stuff. of good ones. Next week, you got two from 1980, don't you? Absolutely. All right, Frankie, download Discovery. I like this segment, Life of Riley by the Lightning Seeds. In fact, the whole album by the Seeds called Sense came out in 1992. Remember, I was working at the station. I just left the radio station. I was looking for something that was up-tempo and something that really related to me as a a younger man, you know, early 30s. I wanted something different. We're getting into alternative stuff. Wasn't really into Nirvana. Right. That was grunge. That was young kid stuff, early 20s. Uh, wasn't into rap, as I said, or country, but it was into like stuff like this, uh, alternative stuff. And the Lightning Seeds rang the bell for me. It only hit number 98 in the spring of that year. So if you want to download the album Sense, it would make sense to me. But one of the cuts was Life of Riley, a nice little number from a very good year in music, which included releases by R.E.M., Automatic for the People, mm. Wish by The Cure, which featured Fred Am and Love, and a couple from Bruce Springsteen, Human Touch, and also Lucky Town. Great. The album Sense has some good other stuff. The title cut's also outstanding. You know, they, um, I really like British bands. I like new wave stuff, and these guys were great for me. So I would highly recommend Life of Riley from the album Sense from the Lightning Seeds. That's Sounds this like a week's, good one, yeah, yeah. I download Discovery for this week. What you got, Frankie? Mine uh, is a very little-known uh, number by a guy named Jim Pepper called Witchy Titel. Uh, it's a single. You can get the uh, abbreviated version that runs for about three and a half minutes, or you can go for the longer version, which I suggest, because it has uh, some of the sax solo and things like that in it. But Jim Gilbert Pepper II was a jazz saxophonist and composer and singer uh, of Caw and Muskegee, Creek Native American heritage. Hmm. His witchy Taito derived from a peyote song of the Native American church, which he had learned from his grandfather, is the most famous example of his hybrid jazz North American style. Jim Chance then sings the words after about 35 seconds when the music kicks in. And what music it is? Uh, an unforgettable, unforgettable melody that will literally stay with you for days. Also featured is a sweet jazz tenor saxophone solo. And finally, back to the chant after the music fades out. If you are not familiar with it, I can guarantee you two things. First thing, uh, you've never heard a song quite like it. And second, it'll leave a smile on your face. Featured artist this week, Frankie, as we're running them down one by one, the Beatles solo artist John Lennon, John Winston Ono Lennon, born October 9th, 1940, also the birthday to his son, Sean, which comes uh, the song number nine, Dream. Oh, love that song. Me too. They don't play it as much as they should. No, they don't. I love that song. John Lennon has some of the greatest songs you'll ever hear. Absolutely. And not just with the Beatles, but as a solo artist. We'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. The activist, the outspoken opponent of Vietnam War, had lots of issues with the U.S. government. Uh, they wanted him deported. He was denied permanent residency, a matter that would not be resolved in 1976. There's a really good documentary, The U.S. versus John Lennon, which That's you can right. see every now and again on HBO. It's, it's fantastic. What would you think of John Lennon as a solo artist? 
it's his solo career was a little bit up and down. Let's put it that way. Uh, his his early solo career, he put out some of the most fantastic music of his life, and then as he seemed to hit, he kind of hit a wall. He wasn't coming out with uh, very new, exciting ideas, and wasn't really connecting with what was going on in in the early to mid seventies. One of his albums was a. Uh, a uh, whole album of standards like Stand By Me and, and songs like that mm-hmm. because he couldn't seem to kind of connect at that time. And then he quit the business totally. Yeah, to raise his son, Sean. To raise his son. Of course, yeah. the long weekend and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought he was a great artist. Uh, I really like how, you know, he's not going to write these pop tunes forever. You could tell he was going in a different direction. Exactly. Uh, with the Beatles. John Lennon just had a whole different way of uh, seeing the world, didn't he? He definitely did, and I, you know, that was not only out in his music, but everything he did, his artistry, and uh, uh, even the way he lived his life. Yeah. Interesting character, married Yoko. On March 20th, 1969, their famous bed-in for peace took place on their honeymoon in Amsterdam in March. They actually did two of those. The second one was late May in Montreal, where they recorded Give Peace a Chance, the song and the video. Tommy Smothers is photographed being a part of that. He, he that definitely thing, was, uh, as were a lot of people uh, at that time, um, kind of connecting with the vibe, the whole anti-war vibe. Yeah. With Yoko Ono, these albums, Unfinished Music, number one, Two Virgins. 1969, Unfinished Music, number two, Life with the Lions. He did the wedding album in 1969. You can kind of picture that cover. Sometime in New York in 1972, Double Fantasy in 1980, and Milk and Honey posthumously in 1984 as a solo artist. Well, kind of. John Lennon, the Plastic Ono Band, 1970. Imagine. Mind Games came in 73. Walls and Bridges in 74. And the rock and roll was the the cover songs from the late 50s and early 60s, which you mentioned. That was exactly. uh, 1976. Piece of Chance, Cold Turkey, Instant Karma, Love, which was redone by The Letterman, which will bring any bride's father's to tears, you know, mm-hmm. if you think about it. What a great song that is. Oh, My Love, he sang, and George Harrison played guitar on that one, as well as several others from the Imagine album. So he and George were really getting along at the time. But then they had kind of a falling out because he was living over here, George was over there. And and same with Paul McCartney. They were kind of hot and cold. They didn't like each other. They were maybe a little jealous of each other, Paul. John didn't really think much of Paul's songwriting stuff in the 70s. and Exactly. And who knew? It would have been great to have those two get together on stage somewhere. I would have, all I would four have, of them. But I would have loved to have heard just the two of them, yeah, get together and just, just play. Two guitars and just have fun and play. Now, nowadays they might have with all the... YouTube and Netflix and the money that would have been pouring in. Right. They might have done something nowadays. It's possible. Yeah. Power to the People, 1971. Happy Christmas. Happy Xmas. War is mm-hmm. over. Hit number three in 1971. And that just might end up as part of your top ten rockin' Christmas tunes, which we'll be counting down next month. Mind Games, which I really like. The number one song, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. And my favorite of his, Number Nine Dream. That hit number nine. In 1974. So, and just like starting over in 1980, then Woman, then Watching the Wheels, and then everybody knows where they were the night of December 8th, 1980. There was no YouTube. There was no Twitter. No. It was late, later at night. Uh, Monday Night Football is where most of it got it, John. Yep. Uh, you know, 
Uh, Howard Cosell gave me the news. How about you? Uh, actually, I was working, um, uh, doing my managerial gig at beautiful open pantry there. Yeah, corner at the, of uh, at Madison the top and of your street, actually. Yep. Um, and we were listening to the football game, and they came on. It wasn't Howard Cosell who told me, but whoever was doing the radio, Jack Buck or somebody. Yeah, like came on, and everybody, you know, we all went, "What?" Shocked. Yeah, and Shocking. then everybody who came in the, uh, the the store after that was just, everybody knew, exactly. I mean, somehow everybody knew. It was just, to this day, I get chills. I can't believe it's been 41 years, you know, last year. In fact, Sean and Julian had a nice little Father's Day tribute in uh, earlier this year in the June of 21. And they had a really nice tribute to him with what would have, which would have been his third, his, his 80th birthday. Uh, back in November of last year. But when it happened, I remember immediately going upstairs and tuning in WMMS. Everybody That's what did. I did, yep. For the tributes, the music, the, what happened. And I remember uh, late that night when I got home and they played uh, Happy Christmas. And the, at the beginning of that where they say Happy Christmas, Sean. And, and let me tell you, that is the first and only time in my life I've ever cried for somebody's death that I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, yes, if I knew them or I was good friends with them, that's something different. But this was somebody I'd never met, would never meet, had no idea of what type of person he was or not. But in that moment, I, I wept. You felt like you knew him. Absolutely. Everybody did. You saw the outpouring of emotion at Central Park the next weekend. And mm-hmm. Well, to me, Frankie, we were off on uh, winter break. I went to Ohio so We had a six-week break. It's Christmas time. It was just so hard to fathom what was going on and you know i remember thinking this is the part of my youth that has just been killed off and it Absolutely. just happened so suddenly and as a young person you don't deal with death a lot no you, you know and especially in that kind of sudden form it just came out of nowhere we're watching the football game and just about ready for the kick to win the game and howard cosell brings this news and everybody's like open mouth shocked at what they heard yes and it wasn't one of those well he drank himself to death or he vomited uh, you know he, he yeah choked on his own vomit or something shot like that. and killed dead on arrival it was an assassination for god's sake god. it was i mean something that we're totally not used to and thank god we we haven't been you know it really hasn't happened since that i that i can remember it's, it's it was a, just that one time where you know, somebody went off the rails. And uh, and that chilling photograph which emerged with Mark David Chapman in the background and John signing the album for exactly. him just hours before his death. My goodness, it was hard to work the next day. I worked at Mally's sending out Absolutely. candy. I just listened to to the radio. Nowadays, sure. you'd be glued to the TV or, or your phone or whatever. But back then, you listened to WMMS. And Absolutely. they did a great job, I thought, of recounting his life and playing the Stuff you hadn't heard for so long. He was such a young man. He just came out with that album. And the starting over was a great way to put it. it. It was. And he was starting over with his career and his life, really. He'd gotten his act together from yeah. his alcoholic days in the uh, early Lost to mid-70s. And, yeah. and, yeah, all that that went down. And he and Yoko seemed to be back in good place. He was uh, a house husband. Yeah. He was raising his son. Raising his son. He oh. was a part of a family. And... He had decided that now was the time. Now was the time to, yeah. to strike. And he came out with that terrific album 
that he was able to incorporate even you know Yoko stuff in, mm-hmm. uh, and it just you know when that when that album broke, it was just so much fun just to hear him on the radio again. It was such a great beginning with the three bells, ding ding ding. Mm-hmm. He was at a great place in his life, you would think, living in New York, finally at peace, at home. Right. He's got his wife. He's got his young son. He's got his music. He's still at the height of his songwriting and singing ability. What do you think he would have been like as a performer in the 80s? It's hard to imagine, but I'd it like, is. I sometimes I, I'd like to think about what it would be like to see him in the 80s. I would like to think that there would have been some, some more good music from him, some more really good music. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he wouldn't, uh, along the way, he wouldn't have uh, pushed Paul a little harder. Yeah. For him to come out with some some maybe some better stuff than what he came out with. Yeah, that might have helped him in the eighties because Paul was putting out stuff, but it wasn't selling as much. The people were kind of moving on to other things, and maybe Paul was too. You know, it would have been great to see them on stage singing. I know the uh, famous Thanksgiving concert that was, I guess, on a bet, wasn't it, mm-hmm. with Elton John? Elton said, "If you put out a number one album, you got to appear on stage live with me or a song. The song, whatever gets you through the night, with Elton's help." Went to number one. That's right. So John appeared on stage Thanksgiving night, that famous concert of Elton's at Madison Square Garden, 1974. Now, John sang four songs with Elton. One of them was I Saw Her Standing There. Always one of his favorites, yep. Which appeared on the flip side of the single Philadelphia Freedom, the number one hit by Elton uh, early in spring of 75. So that's a nice little nugget. If you still have that single, which I do, flip it over. You'll find a nice surprise. That was one of the four songs he sang. Uh, you know, you can get those songs on the box set Lennon. You know how in 1990 to like 95, everybody was coming out with box sets? Oh, absolutely. Sinatra and You, you couldn't carry them all. No, right. <laughs> Beach Boy, everybody had one, and I have. And they're, Everyone they're, had one. You still yeah. can, can display them in your bookcase or something. They don't take up a lot of room, and there's a lot of good stuff on there, but I, I dare anybody to listen to the entire box oh, set of anything. yeah, absolutely. But the, the box set Lennon, which came out in October 1990, contains three songs that were performed live at that show. Who knew that that was the last time you're going to see John performing live, and he, he looked, you know, he's still during his little time away from Yoko, and he's hanging out with Harry Nielsen and, and Elton and stuff. So, But, boy, that's some good stuff. It's tremendous, and, you know, you... One of the things I think of when I think of John is that when he came back with the double fantasy, he had just turned uh, 40, I think, I believe, and he didn't look old. No. You know, I mean, he looked like a guy who was, you know, just approaching middle age and just approaching the prime of his life, really. And he had been through a lot, hadn't he? And he had. He'd He'd lived a full life to that time. During that lost weekend time, Frankie helped out Ringo Starr in his album Ringo was joined by George Harrison to the only time that the three had been together to record since their breakup in 1970. And so I wonder how John felt. Ringo was putting out number one songs, so was George, and of course Paul, but John hadn't cracked the number one barrier. Imagine only hit number three. Yeah, I I would think, yeah, definitely, that he was probably, knowing his pride, he was probably upset about that, even though he probably never would have admitted it. So his time in the 70s was not without controversy, Frankie. We talked right. about that great documentary, The U.S. versus John Lennon. Richard Nixon was, uh, you know, up in John's kitchen. He wanted him deported and whatnot. He was definitely on the enemies list. He was. <laughs> <laughs> the 2006 documentary features this interesting tidbit on the DVD Extras edition 
Yoko Ono reading her letter that she wrote to the parole board when they were considering the case of Mark David Chapman in 2000. So the really? DVD extras to that, if you can somehow get your hands on U.S. versus John Lennon DVD, which came out a year later, uh, that was done in 2000. It has her reading that letter that she wrote and read to the parole board. So a lot of things led to the breakup of the Beatles, Frankie. Uh, maybe it was Yoko kind of getting in the way. You know, Brian Epstein died in 1967 suddenly. Well, I think that started the yeah. ball because everybody kind of thought John Lennon might have been the de facto leader, but Paul kind of took over, didn't he, with the business, and he put a, a couple of those uh, movies together, Magical Mystery Tour, Yellow Submarine. I don't know if that right. sat too well with John. Yeah, I don't know, but it didn't seem like John really wanted to be the leader. No. And he never, it seemed like he was much, much more happy living his life and just kind of being a Beatle, you know, kind of almost part-time. Yeah. You know, he was doing the other things, he was putting out the, Records with uh, with Ono and doing his own art and that kind of thing. You know, you could see it coming. Sure. 1966, the movie How I Won the War was filmed, that anti-war black comedy, his only non-musical role on the film. You know, it was produced and directed by Phil Lester, who also produced Hard Day's Night Hard Day's and Night. Help. That's so right. So we knew him. And then Phil would go on to direct the film Superman 2 in 1979. Oh, wow. Also Superman 3, which didn't do so well a couple no, years later. I don't re- didn't remember that. So I never saw the film, but uh, I knew he was in it because I still remember with the, the round glasses and the um, soldier hat. Yeah, the little helmet on, yeah. Yeah, it didn't look like a soldier really to me. It looked like a beetle with a soldier hat on. Exactly. But uh, you could see with the hair part in the middle, the glasses, uh, different kind of songwriting. He wanted to go in a different direction, and I guess maybe it was fueled by LSD or some kind of hallucinogenic drug. But by the time he came back from filming, he wanted to do something totally different. He said, I got tired of writing pop music. Well, and I think that, you know, just think how, how much time they'd spent together. You oh, know, yeah. those early years, we, we you don't talk about them very much, but the early years they spent uh, not only in England, but in Hamburg and uh, a lot of places in Europe, just honing their craft. Well, they got together, the three of them, and the quarrymen, he and Paul and George, Stuart Sutcliffe, Phil Best, and right. Ringo, they got together in the late 50s. They played it, everywhere and did everything. Exactly. And then, they were always together. And they were together, and they were really 24-7, inseparable, the Fab Four. You could just tell it just wore on them. You didn't want to do it anymore. That's right. And wanted to do something else. And so, sure enough, out came Revolver and Sgt. Peppers, and off they went into a whole new direction, didn't exactly. they? Exactly. So, 1984, posthumously, they released the song, Nobody Told Me. That's pretty good, too. And I just heard that last last week on Sirius. That's, a, niche, or that's a, a neat little tune. It's yeah. kind of fun. Um, I told, We talked about... Uh, the anthology CDs that they put on the mid-90s and the two videos that came with it with John's voice, beautiful voice, you know, Free as a Bird, and then the song Real Love. Mm-hmm. And the video that accompanies with Real Love is really cool. You can call it up on YouTube like I did not too long ago, and it takes you a nice trip down memory lane. That's John Lennon, our featured artist this week. Next week, George Harrison is our featured artist. He had a really good solo career in the 70s and 80s, and did work with the Traveling Wilburys, so we'll yeah, talk very about un- him. Very underrated uh, performer. Absolutely. Got mm-hmm. off to a great start. And, of course, uh, you know, great guitarist in, in his work uh, as we move through the 70s and 80s. That's George Harrison next week. Then we'll finish up with Ringo Starr. Great. Thanks for joining me, Frankie. Thanks for having me. This is Tim Friedman, your host of Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.